I've been teaching through the book of John. You guys, anybody reading ahead, find out what happens? Yeah? Good. Okay. Well, today we're in John chapter 5, and uh, it's interesting, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to kind of give you an outline, basically, of John chapter 5. I'm just going to reorganize it and kind of do it in outline form, because it... Jesus is addressing a couple of specific concerns of the Pharisees in a really interesting way. Now, some of this stuff is going to be just very basic truth about Jesus, but it was not basic truth at that time to them. It was revolutionary. It was the first time they were hearing some of this stuff. So I want you to catch that. And also, just because it's basic doesn't mean we always get the implications. And so uh, there'll be some rhetorical questions to think about things. Uh, God poked me a couple times. I don't see any reason why I shouldn't share that poking with you guys. So uh, we want to be thinking about those things as we go through this, all right? So again, as always, you can open up to John chapter 5. I'll be reading through it. Uh, Some of it will come up on the screen there. And uh, also, you've got the notes if you want to follow along, or uh, you can uh, play that word game on your phone uh, and listen. But Definitely listen. Okay. Now, in the first 15 verses, we're just going to skip through those. What happens is Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast, and he heals on the Sabbath. I do want you to think about this. He, He healed on the Sabbath a lot, didn't he? And he knew it torqued the Jews off, didn't he? It's almost like he was poking the bear. And so... Uh, Think about that as we go through this, because he heals on the Sabbath. It's almost like he's trying to make a point, and so (coughs) we'll see what point he's making as we go on. Uh, It is interesting. It has to do with the pool of Bethesda, and an angel come and stirs up the water, and nobody can get in fast enough, and only one person gets healed, and he heals this guy, and you can have a good argument on the way home about whether you think it was really an angel or just a myth. Uh, I'm not even going to address that. Just have fun, because uh, I don't know. <clears throat> That's my official position. Uh, but it's a fun story. Anyway, I want to pick it up with verse 16, the reaction. Jesus is healed on the Sabbath, and in verse 16, we read, For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Jesus had interrupted their church service with healings. We ain't got room for that. (laughs) There's teaching needs to go on. We got a whole worship service planned with some goats and some lambs and a couple of doves. We ain't got room for the healing thing, right? Okay. (laughs) So he's messing up their religious service, and they want to kill him, kill him, because he's healing people on the Sabbath. Now, doesn't that sound crazy? But uh, crazy will come out when Jesus starts doing stuff. There's crazy in people. It'll come out when Jesus starts doing stuff. So they want to kill him for doing good works on the Sabbath, mostly for healing the sick. Now, Jesus, again, I want you to see this, he's going to poke the bear. Because there are times when they want to kill him and he just walks away and they go, where'd he go, where'd he go, where'd he go? And he's, you know, that's just how he handles it. This time he's going to poke the bear. He's going to talk to him. Because it's early on in 
his ministry, and he's going to give them the opportunity to hear the truth. So in verse 17, Jesus answered and said to them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. In other words, Jesus is working because his father is working. Now, that seems simple. This is one of the places where God poked me. Uh, Because I looked at the attitude of Jesus. Hey, I'm looking at the Father. The Father's doing stuff, so I'm going to do stuff. Now, I extrapolated that, and I went, if I'm looking at Jesus, is Jesus working? And if he's working, am I working? Because to be honest with you, it sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm on duty all the time. And to be honest with you, I have on duty and off duty. When I'm off duty, I don't check to see if Jesus is working. I'm doing what I want to do. Right? Anybody with me? No? Okay. And so this kind of poked me. I went, wow, I wonder. Now, I, you know, I don't think I can sustain that level of focus all the time. I got to sleep sometimes and eat and, you know, whatever. But it did provoke me. How much am I paying attention to the work that God's doing and how much am I off duty? How much am I on duty? Maybe there are some places where I should at least be on call, where I'm not on duty, but I'm on call. I'm paying attention. So if he's working, I can jump in. Are you with me? So I just was challenged here by Jesus's attitude. The Father's working, so I'm working. That's just the way it is. Okay? So I want us to, again, one of those rhetorical questions, do we look? For the Father working. Sunday morning would be a good time to be on duty. Did you come here this morning thinking, I'm going to look and see if Jesus or the Father is doing anything and see if I can participate. I'm looking for them working. Or did you come hoping I would do all the work? Okay. So, he makes that simple statement. My Father's been working and I'm working. And this sent the Jews over the edge. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So now we want to like extra double kill you because not only are you breaking a religious service, are you breaking the Sabbath, you're acting like God is your father. And you're acting like he's equal, right? Now, a lot of times, Jesus didn't engage them on this level. But what's interesting, what you're going to see in this chapter, for the entire rest of the chapter, he basically says, funny you should bring that up. I actually am the son of God. He actually is my father. And I want to talk to you about the relationship we have. And we actually are equal, and I'm going to explain to you in what ways we're equal. And so he's going to, uh, we have this great dissertation here where Jesus explains to us his relationship with the Father and why he's equal. And it's, it's good doctrine. We should have this doctrine soundly in us. And <clears throat> then at the end, he's going to explain to them why they can't handle the truth. Okay? So, let's begin to look at this. Keep in mind what the Jews are really, really bent about is he's calling God Father and he's saying he's equal to God. They clearly get that. 
uh, people will try and tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I, well, there are a lot of angry Jews that think he did. Right? And this is one of those times. Uh, he clearly did claim to be equal with the Father. Now, the one thing I want you to see here is <clears throat> him using the Father in such a personal way is unprecedented. This is super new. If you go through the Old Testament, the places, and there are not very many, just a few, maybe over a dozen, uh, the places where God is referred to as Father, it's never personal. It's like he's the Father of Israel. Uh, it's not he's your Father. There's not this personal thing going on. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and it says, this is personal. He's my Father. I I act just like he's my father. And so uh, we get that now, and we you know, are, are, uh, you know, lean into that, but they didn't get this. This was, this was radical for them, that God, whose name you don't even say out loud, Yahweh, uh, that he could be personal, that he could be not just the father of Israel, but my father. Uh, it was a whole new concept, right? And so Jesus wants them to get this concept so he's going to begin to explain his familial relationship. So let's look at verses 19 and 20. <coughs> Pardon me. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now, he's basically addressing what uh, the Jews are complaining about. You're acting like God's your father. He's going, yeah, he is my father. Let me explain to you the familiar relationship we have. And what I want you to see is he's going he's gonna to make this very clear. He starts with, the relationship from his perspective. Let's make sure we understand what this is in verse 19, because uh, this should uh, affect our relationship with Jesus and with the Father. This is the same relationship that we can have. I want to remind you, we're going to talk about this more. In John chapter 1, we already learned that Jesus came as the Son of God. He became man not just to save us, but to make us sons and daughters of God. It's very important you remember that. We hit that in John 1. He came to make us sons and daughters of God. And so what we're seeing here is what's it like to be in this family? So let's look. First, from Jesus' perspective, uh, he says this. One, he can do nothing but what he sees the Father do. I don't do anything except what I see the Father do. Right? And two... He does whatever the Father does. In other words, he is fully involved. So two things. In Jesus' relationship with the Father, from his perspective, he says, I do two things. One, I don't do anything unless I see the Father do it. And two, I don't skip anything. I do everything the Father does. That second one's kind of big, right? He's not just picking and choosing. I do some things the Father does. He goes, I do everything the Father does. And so again, we want to think about that. This is where those rhetorical questions come in. Is our relationship with the Father like that? Whatever we see him doing, we do. And we do everything he does. Can we do that? Is that available to us? Certainly, 
was available to Jesus, right? So, verse 19, he does nothing but what he sees the Father do, and he does whatever the Father does. He is fully involved in whatever work the Father is up to. You get that? And so the challenge for me as I was preparing this was, hey, Tony, how fully involved do you want to be in the work I'm doing? Do you want to be involved on Monday, not just Sunday? Right? So I, I just share that challenge with you in case you enjoy it. Okay. And then in verse 20, he flips it, and we get it from the Father's perspective. Verse 19 is from Jesus' perspective. I only do what I see him doing, and I do <clears throat> pardon me, everything I see him doing. And then in verse 20, we get it from the Father's perspective. Uh, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things. That he, and then he talks about the greater works and marveling. So here it is from the Father's perspective. Because the Father loves the Son, it's important that we get the reason. Because the Father loves me so much, he shows Jesus everything he does. Now think about that. He is fully invested in Jesus. He shows Jesus everything he does. It's not like Jesus going, I'm watching the Father, and whatever the Father does, I do, but he's not showing me everything. You understand what's going on? He says, he loves me so much, he doesn't hide anything from me. He shows me every single thing he's doing, and then I do it with him. You remember how God said he does nothing except he reveals it to his servants, the prophets? So he is fully invested in Jesus. He wants Jesus fully partnered with him. Now again, this is basic stuff, but this is stuff that merits spending a few minutes thinking about, doesn't it? Man, Jesus and the Father are so one and so in love that they are just fully involved in what each other are doing, and they hide nothing. Everything is open, and everything the Father does, he shows Jesus. Everything Jesus sees, he does. And the challenge is, when it comes down to the next tier, when Jesus begins to add sons and daughters, is that still going to apply? What do you think? Okay. That's challenging, isn't it? But I think that's the relationship that he wants. And so Jesus is explaining to the Jewish leaders his relationship, his familial relationship with the Father. Now, not only does he show Jesus everything he does, he says in verse 20 that he will also show him greater works so that you, so that we can marvel. Again, this is something we should ponder. He's showing, he goes, look, everything the Father does, I do. He's already opening blind eyes, healing the sick, casting out devils. It's already a pretty impressive show and tell, isn't it? And he's going, but you know what? He's going to show greater things than, I've, than what I've already done. There's going to be greater works. Why? So that you can marvel. Why is it important that we marvel? We'll get back to that. But what I want you to see here is this whole show and tell thing that's going on with the Father is for our benefit. He's focused on us. Everything the Father's doing, he shows me, and I participate in it, and I 
display it. I do it here on earth. Why? So that you can marvel. This, all that is about you guys. I want you marveling. Okay? So we want to think about that. Now, rhetorical question. Going to jump ahead. <coughs> we're going to get into this later, obviously, because we're working through John. Um, so what happens when, as I talked about in John 1, said he came to make us sons and daughters. He loves the son so much, he shows him everything. And he's going to show him greater works so that we can marvel. What happens when we become beloved sons and daughters? We think. Rhetorical question. Think about that. What happens when we become beloved sons and daughters? Do you think this whole thing comes down a whole nother tier? Well, if you read in John 14, spoiler alert, you'll find out that it does. John 14, verse 12, very well-known promise. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Doesn't that sound just like what Jesus was describing with his father? So, the father's going to show greater works so that you can marvel. And then when I go to the father, what happens when he goes to the father? You guys remember in John 14, what's he talking about? Anyone remember? He's talking about us receiving the Holy Spirit. He's saying, hey, it's actually better that I go to the father because then you're going to get the spirit of God in you which is what he's been talking about in John chapter 2, and John chapter 3, and John chapter 4. The Spirit of God, right? And so, he says in John 14 that we'll do greater works because I go to the Father. And so I have to ask the question, if Jesus is doing greater works so that we can marvel, why are we doing greater works? Who's supposed to be marveling? What do you think? Well, yeah. Somebody's supposed to be looking at this and marveling. Amen. Okay? And it works in his plan that we're going to see later for getting people to believe in Jesus. It's just the way he does stuff. And so, why is marveling important? Again, I'm, some of these are just rhetorical questions that I really want you to think about. Why is it important that we display something that causes people to marvel? Why is that important? I have thoughts on that. And so Jesus was watching the Father, looking for the Father's works, and doing the works that he saw the Father doing. Which begs the question, are we looking for marvelous works? Are we looking for marvelous works? Are you looking for marvelous works when you come to church? Are you looking for marvelous works at work? Is that allowed at work? How about your home? It ought to be easy to do marvelous works at your home, right? If there's something about marveling that's important for people to understand that Jesus is who he says he is, shouldn't we be displaying this? Shouldn't we be displaying this to our young people? Shouldn't there be some marvelous works occasionally in your home that your children see? Could you look for them there? And so... Uh, the challenge to me is, am I going to open my spiritual senses to look for the works of God? Not just on Sunday morning, not just at church, but to look for what he's doing. Because he wants to 
use me to display marvelous works. Now, I mention young people because uh, Rachel and I did youth ministry for over 20 years, and you, you notice some trends uh, over a long period of time doing anything. And here's one of the trends we noticed, that the youth that encountered God tended to go off to college and walk with God. Now, they had issues and troubles like you do, but they tended to do that. The youth that never encountered God, that their, their whole experience was just sort of teaching and being in a worship service, but they never had any real encounter, we would notice that very often they would fade, usually when they got their driver's license. They'd find other places they could be. They would go to college and fall away. Now, this isn't a hard and fast rule. There are exceptions on both ends, but it was definitely a trend. And so we began to realize, hey, it's really important, not just that we teach them the Bible and that we teach them about Jesus, but that we create an atmosphere where they can encounter God. Because if we don't get them in the place where they can marvel, they may not keep believing. God wants them to marvel. God wants your young people to marvel. We should be trying hard to set them up for marveling. Amen? We're trying here on Sunday morning to have some marveling. We have a little, <coughs> we'll have a testimony later about something marvelous. Amen? All right, so the family relationship. I only do what I see Dad doing. Dad shows me everything. I do it so that you guys can marvel. Got it? All right. <coughs> Let's go on to verse, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> 21 through 23. So in the first part, he addresses God being father. And he's made that pretty clear. The Pharisees are going, hey, you're acting like God's your father. And he goes, yeah, he so is. And here's how we relate. In the second part, they go, hey, you're acting like you're equal with God. And he goes, yeah, I so am. Let me explain to you how. Okay, so in verse 21 through 23, we're going to begin to see that second part. He says, for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so, the son gives life to whom he will, just like the father. Gives life to whoever he wants. Again, simple statement. We need to let that thing kind of sink in. He just gives life to whoever he wants, just like the father did when he just took some dirt and made an atom out of it. I mean the Adam, A-D-A-M, not A-T-O-M, right? Yeah. He gives life. For the Father, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm going to verse 23. Uh, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father, equal honor. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, equal dishonor. And so here's what I want you to get out of that. Jesus is revealing the equality of their relationship, and he's going beyond that and also revealing his purpose regarding men. Okay? So here we go. First, he is like the Father in that he gives life to whoever he wants. That is kind of huge. Only one man can do that. Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only begotten Son of God. He is the only one like the Father who can give life. In fact, we're going to find out in verse 26, so I'll wait till we get there, but we're going to find out that He is the source of life. 
And we already saw that in John 1, the logos, remember? Way back when we first started. So he is like the Father in that just like the Father, he can give life to whoever he wants. This is kind of a big deal. How many of you want life? There are only two places you can get it. The Father and Jesus. And the Father has said, I'm only working through Jesus. So there's one place you can get life. Period. All right? Now, the second thing he says is in verse uh, 22, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. He says, in fact, not only am I the giver of life, the Father has committed all justice to me. And so if you're worried about whether or not I can heal on the Sabbath or whatever, you just need to be aware that justice for the entire earth is entirely in my purview. The Father has committed all justice to the Son. You understand? So not only is he the giver of life, he is the final arbiter of who gets life and who doesn't. He is the final arbiter of justice. Amen? And so it's kind of a big deal. And, and then he goes on, and we see in the third uh, verse, verse 23, that their honor is commingled. If you honor the, me, you honor the Father. If you dishonor me, you dishonor the Father. We are in this together, and so the Father takes it personally if you honor or dishonor Jesus, right? So he's doubling down. Not only are we equal, He's telling the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders, you aren't going to be able to get away with thinking you're honoring the Father and dishonoring me. It's not going to work. It's not going to go well for you. And by the way, I'm the final arbiter of justice. I'm the one you'll stand before. Right? So, it's a pretty all-encompassing, profound answer. And again, these are things we get, but all of these things were unprecedented to them and new to them and hard for them to understand because they'd spent hundreds of years in a religious system that wasn't, uh, or that they didn't get. It actually was about the love of God. They just didn't get it. And uh, they didn't get the intimacy that God wanted to have. They didn't get all this stuff, right? And so he's going to go on now. So he's dealt with yeah, we are. I, uh, he is my father. Here's our relationship. He's dealt with, yeah, we are equal. Uh, equal honor. Uh, equal life. And then he's going to go on in verses 24 through 30. He's going to reveal the life and death nature of justice. Not only is all justice committed to me, but it is life and death and no in between. It is life and death and no in between. And so he wants them to understand the nature of justice and how big a deal it is, that it's literally eternal life or eternal condemnation. And he's going to reveal to them now the only solution, what we call the gospel, the good news, that uh, they weren't able to hear. And again, we understand that now. This was new to them, a people who had spent hundreds of years uh, doing the law, doing sacrifices in hopes of being right with God. And Jesus is telling them, we're going beyond that. It's a whole different way. So here we go. 
verses 24 through 30. Verse 24 is amazing. Jesus is going to talk about the life and death nature of his justice and the one solution and understand clearly there is only one solution to this problem. Uh, anyone who tells you different is lying to you. There is only one solution to the life and death problem of justice, and it's Jesus. Amen. And he expounds on it here in verse 24. Amazing verse. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. That is an incredible statement. And it's mind-blowing that the Jewish leaders could hear that and, and just sort of keep going after Jesus. I at least would have stopped and thought about that one. That's a, that's a wild statement. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying that anyone who listens to me and believes the Father sent me. Now, wrapped up in believing the Father sent me is all the things we know about the gospel, that he sent Jesus to die for our sins, that uh, Jesus is the exact representation of God, many of the other things we've learned. Uh, but all that's entailed in believing that I was sent from the Father. He goes, look, all you've got to do to skip eternal judgment is believe the Father sent me from heaven and listen to what I say. That's it. That's it. Isn't that amazing? And the result is we get to skip judgment, avoid death, pass go, and collect eternal life. We get to go right to eternal life. Now, some of you are thinking about all those verses. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what is done, whether good or bad. That in the last days, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's true. But factor this into that. That if we have listened to the voice of Jesus and put our faith in him, we get to skip judgment in the sense of condemnation and pass from death into eternal life. Now, here's what that means. In fact, I'll do this. I don't have time. It's a whole other teaching. I don't have time to develop it, but I would encourage you, just do a simple word search in the New Testament sometime on reward. It might surprise you how much Jesus talks about his reward. I'm coming, and my reward is with me. Do you know what judgment is for the person who's listened to Jesus? It's mostly about reward. It's mostly about reward. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to get reward. Because we believed him. I love uh, Pastor Tim. He's been uh, talking about Jude 24 lately. How God is able to present us faultless before the presence of his glory. Faultless. Now I want you to imagine standing before the glorified God. The one who's uh, like a consuming fire, who is a terror, who people fall down as if dead when they see him. It says he's able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And you're happy to be there. How does that happen? Amen. That's Jude 24. He's able to do it. Okay. Anyway, you go do the reward study on your own.
So he gives them the only solution to this life and death problem. And then, uh, <coughs> let me just, actually, did I read, I didn't read this. Uh, let me read the rest of it, and then we'll talk about it, because I'm going to reorganize it a little bit. He says, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all those who are in the graves will hear his voice, and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing, uh, I can of myself do nothing, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And there's a lot there, let's unpack it, I'm going to reorganize it just a little bit. The first thing, I'm going to start with verse 26, that they are equally the source of life. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself as well. He is the Logos, the life giver, the one who has life in himself. We learned that in John 1. Amen? Now, here's what that means. That means, as he said in verse 25, the verse just before, that he can... He is the giver of life because he has life in himself. In verse 25, he says, The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who are here will live. I think the now is, this is just me, I think the now is is talking about a spiritual death. If you're here today and you have never put faith in Jesus, the Bible says you are dead in sin and trespass and destined to condemnation because you have no way pay for your sins. But if you put faith in Jesus, you will pass from death to life. Amen. That's what he's talking about. Verse 25, uh, the, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. If you'll hear him today, you can live. You can be born again. Your spirit coming alive in Christ. So I think that's what he's talking about. That right now, people are going to be spiritually born again that the spiritually dead who hears Jesus' voice can live. But he also says is coming, and I, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if he's also referring to what was going to happen soon when he died. We know that he spent three days and nights in the earth. We know it's clear in Ephesians. I've given you the verses there if you want to look them up in Ephesians and Peter, that he went and preached the gospel to those who had died before, who had no access to heaven, because Jesus is the door, and the door isn't open until the veil is torn, until he died to pay for our sins. And so it says he went and preached to those who were captive, or to those who had died before. It's very clear in Peter. You can go look it up and read it. And so I think he's also talking about those who will believe in him, uh, who will hear the gospel, who like died in the flood, and they've been hanging around at Abraham's bosom or whatever, somewhere in the earth, Jesus comes and says, hey, you can be saved now through me. And they have that opportunity. Isn't that wild? Now, the next thing, though, we see is verses 28 through 29. <clears throat> he says, don't marvel. And he goes, the hour is coming, so this is the future, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Everyone who's died will hear his voice. And they'll come forth, 
Some, there'll be a resurrection, some to life, some to condemnation. So that pretty clearly, <coughs> I think, is him covering the resurrection of all dead to the final life and death judgment on the last days. So he covers it all. He's going, I can make you spiritually alive right now. I'm going to go in a, in a couple years here. I'm going to go and preach to those who have already died. And in the last day, I'm going to raise up everyone. And everyone will either uh, have eternal life. That's, you know, the rapture and the new body and all that. We're all looking forward to getting a new body, right? The older you get, the more you look forward to it. And, and the resurrection at the end of the millennium, the second death, when those who have rejected Jesus are raised to eternal condemnation. Right? So he covers all of that. So he's giving them a very comprehensive uh, sort of essay on why I'm here. I'm the only solution, and everyone is going to have eternal life or eternal condemnation based on whether or not they listen to me and believe the Father sent me. It's that simple, right? And so he gives them all this, and then <clears throat> there's a couple interesting things here uh, right at the end. Uh, he says in verse 27, um, and he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now, what's he been emphasizing up until now? Son of God. Son of God. Now he's emphasizing Son of Man when he talks about his authority. Uh, we learned again, uh, we saw this some in John 1, uh, in verse 27, it's clear his authority to judge is as the Son of Man. We will be judged by a man who is tempted in all ways as we were, yet without sin. One who understands, as Hebrews 4 talks about. That's the man who will judge us. Now, you see that really clearly in Revelation chapter 5. And again, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to give you a quick blow through. Uh, you can go read it. I'd recommend you do in the context of this as we're just gazing at Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, uh, the Father has a scroll, which I think is like the deed to earth or whatever. It has seals on it. And no one is worthy to open the seals. And John's really bummed, and he's crying and having a bad day because no one is worthy to open the seals. And angel says, hey, chill. There's one, one found worthy, the lamb. He's worthy to open the seals. And then there begins to be rejoicing in heaven. All these uh, antiphonal songs come out about he's worthy because he purchased with his blood, the earth and men, because he became a man and poured his blood out to save us. He is the one found worthy. And when he begins to open the seals, because only he is worthy, what happens? Justice begins to be executed on the earth. We begin to have the great uh, tribulation, right? You see it? There's a man seated at the right hand of God. A sinless man. Son of God, son of man. As son of man, he will judge the earth in righteousness. Amen? Because he's worthy. Because he came and became a man and overcame and purchased with his blood you and I. Isn't that awesome? 
there's just a wonderful, all-encompassing glimpse of Jesus here. Now, the last thing he says in verse 30 is <clears throat> that his judgment will be righteous because he's not in it for himself. He only wants the Father's will, right? And so even though we'll be judged by a man, it will be absolutely impartial and righteous because he only seeks the Father's will. He is not personally uh, making judgments. He is looking at the Father and taking the standards of the Father and applying those to earth. And it'll be a righteous judgment. Now here's the wonderful thing, if you haven't already caught this. The whole point of verse 24 is we can skip all that by the blood of Jesus. No one, no one will be found righteous based on God's standards. But everyone who's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, who's been purchased by the blood of Jesus, has been made perfect, Amen. will be found righteous by God's standards. Amen. Not by anything we've done, but by the blood of Jesus. It's a very simple plan. It's a very narrow door. And his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen? And so he explains the gospel here to the Jewish leaders. <coughs> and uh, they still want to kill him. They're going to keep wanting to kill him. And they'll eventually succeed, which was his plan anyway. Right? Now, in the remainder of this chapter, and we're going to look at this kind of quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I'm just going to cherry pick some passages. Uh, you can read it later. But here's what he does. He's explained all this to them. Yes, uh, he's my father. Yes, we're equal. And by the way, I'm going to judge the earth. And the only way you're coming out of this well is if you believe, if you listen to me and believe him who sent me or believe that he sent me. Otherwise, it's going to go badly. And then he's going to tell them why they can't hear him. So first he starts out with his witnesses. He says, look, I am not just testifying of myself here. I have witnesses. He says, my first witness is John the Baptist. You guys know about that. We've been reading about him. He says, my second witness is the works. The works themselves bear witness of me that I am from sent from the Father. I'm doing God works. I'm doing stuff only God can do. I'm opening blind eyes. I'm raising the dead. I'm doing these works when? On the Sabbath. Why? So you can marvel. You're getting bent because I'm doing them on the Sabbath. I'm doing them on the Sabbath because you're all there. And I want to give you marveling so that you'll believe in him who sent me. So that you'll believe in me. So that you'll be saved. I'm doing them on the Sabbath on purpose so that, so that the people who come can see the works and marvel. And they don't get that. He says, the works testify of me. He says, the Father is a witness. Remember in Matthew 3.17, we looked at earlier, when he was baptized, the Father, an audible voice from heaven, says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right? So the Father testifies. He says the Word testifies, the Word of the Father, the Scriptures. All the Scriptures you have 
Pharisees and Sadducees, testify of me. And finally, he says, Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 said, I'm going to raise up, uh, God's going to raise up a prophet like me. You need to listen to him. He says, you need to hear him, which is what Jesus is saying. I'm just saying, God sent me. You need to listen to me. Moses said, God's going to send a prophet. You need to listen to him. And he's telling them, you don't believe me because you don't believe Moses. And so here's what he does. Because uh, the Jews clearly still want to kill him. They don't believe. And he says there's three reasons. He gives them the three reasons why they can't hear him. Now, I want to look at these to finish up because we may not be Pharisees, um, but these are good things for us to use for self-evaluation. Is any of this Pharisee-ish thinking in me? Are any of these three reasons something I need to be careful about? in my attempt to believe the Father sent him and to look at the works of the Father and to do those works and to do the greater works and to pursue marveling. So let's look at those. The first one is in <clears throat> verses 38 through 40. These are the three reasons why the Jews can't hear him. It says, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. He says, you know, I can tell because you don't believe in me who God sent, that you don't have his word abiding in you. Now, who's he talking to? Who here thinks they could beat a Pharisee in an Old Testament scripture knowledge contest? <laughs> Anyone? Not me. These guys knew the Bible. They knew the Bible. So catch what he's saying here. You don't have the word of God abiding in you. You haven't let it affect your heart. It's just rules. You're just trying to go through the religious steps to have self-righteousness. You haven't caught the heart of God in this. You haven't let this penetrate you. Now that's something we need to worry about, isn't it? Old and New Testament. Are we just reading it for the rules or for the stories? Or are we letting it penetrate our hearts? Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. If we're not careful, and we should know the scripture, and we should study the scripture, and the scripture is living and active, and it's awesome. But if we're not careful, we'll think the end is the scripture, and it's not. Jesus says, the scriptures point to me. The scriptures are so you'll come to me and get life. I give you life. He is the living word of God. The scriptures absent Jesus are not life. Jesus is the life part of the scriptures. And so we have to be careful that we don't do what the Pharisees do uh, in entering into rules over relationship. Rules over relationship. It's not about just offering the right sacrifices, going three times a year to Jerusalem to do the feasts, coming to church on Sunday, making sure you don't do the wrong things and do do the right things. It's way more than that. The scripture is to bring us to Jesus, to have intimacy with the Son of God, to see what he's doing and do what we see, to let the scriptures pierce our heart so that our heart begins to become like Jesus' heart. Remember, they hadn't let the word 
penetrate their hearts. So here's an example. If you read the scriptures and what you mostly get out of them are expectations from him, from God, I need to do this or God's going to be mad at me. I need to do better at this if I want to go to heaven. And you might be having a little bit of that pharisaical heart going on. What Jesus is saying is, we read the scriptures because they bring us to him. I'm reading this book and getting Jesus' heart for me. And I'm getting drawn into the love of the Father and the love of Jesus. And I'm seeing it and how they're inviting me into that love. And now I'm not obeying because I'm afraid that I'm not going to make heaven. I'm obeying because I'm falling in love. Because I'm meeting Jesus in the scriptures. Right? I know it's a fine line. But it's a line we need to pay attention to. The scriptures are not an end in themselves. They're to bring us to Jesus, the Son of God, the source of life, the only door. And he wants us to have intimacy with him. The second thing, that they, the second reason they couldn't hear him is in verse 42. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. Whoa. You mean... We could really, 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 really know the scriptures and doctrine and be doing it all right and, and be missing the love part? Good. You hear me? It's easy to do, isn't it? We just start talking to each other and we're in, before you know it, we're in the middle of an argument about whether or not you're saved and <laughs> forgotten we're supposed to be loving you. Right? It's even harder on Facebook. They aren't even right there. You can, you, you can just, you know. Well, I'm just telling them this because I love them. Really? <laughs> I always tell people that. Everybody ever, ever warn you? Brother, I'm going to speak the truth to you in love. Ephesians 4. I'm, I need to speak the truth to you in love. I said, it's okay. You don't have to warn me. I'll be able to tell. <laughs> right? You understand what I'm saying? It's so easy for us to be pharisaical and forget that it's all about love. And even in the Old Testament, it was all about love. I want you to look at some of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees and the religious leaders asked Jesus, what's the great commandment? And he gets it right. He says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. And then he says this. He says, for in uh, the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Or in other words, these two commandments fulfill the law and the prophets. So let me extrapolate. Hey, Pharisees, you guys are really hung up on the law and the prophets. If you just love, you would be doing all the law. You'd be doing all the prophets wanted. If you just love God and love people... All the rest of that would take care of itself. He goes on in Hosea, there's Hosea 6, verse 6. Uh, he's, uh, Hosea says, for God, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which is weird because the Old Testament is all about sacrifice, isn't it? There's a lot of animals getting sacrificed in the Old Testament. But God says, it's really not about that. It's been about mercy the whole time. I find it interesting that Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 6 twice 
to the Pharisees. In Matthew 9, they're upset because he's eaten with tax collectors and sinners. And he goes, hey guys, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Guys, it's about love, not about whether or not they're sinners. Now, he has a remedy for their sin, but it's about love. The other time he does it is in Matthew chapter 12 when they get upset because the disciples are eating grain on the Sabbath. They're plucking grain as they walk through a field, and that's work. They don't do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them again, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You guys have it flipped. You think you're earning something from God with your sacrifice. I just want mercy. I'm going to take care of all the sacrifice. The Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, has that covered. Amen? Amen. And then the last thing that he tells them, why they're not able to hear him, is verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? It was more important to them to be honored by men. It's nice to be honored by men, isn't it? Tempting when your stand for God uh, maybe makes it difficult for men to honor you. It might cost you some honor. People might think less of you when you have to decide. Is it more important to me to be honored by God or by men? For the Pharisees, they couldn't believe in Jesus because Jesus would have immediately become a bigger deal than them. And they weren't about to give up the honor that they were receiving as religious leaders. Now, this is a good word for pastors, right? But uh, for all of us, it applies. Uh, We all have that thing in us that desires honor for men. And we all will have times in our life where we have to decide, it's more important for me to be honored by God than by men. Sometimes it's as simple as what Jesus said when he said, when you go in someplace, take the lower seat so that someone doesn't, if you take the higher seat, someone might come to you and say, hey, someone more honorable has come, move down. So take the lower seat. And then they might come to you and say, hey, move up, move up here. Sometimes just choosing humility is really hard. I'm just going to take the lower seat. I'm just not going to promote myself. I'm going to put the honor that God gives me above the honor that these people give me. Can we do that? As Rachel is fond of saying, that kind of humility is a magnet for the favor of God. It is a magnet for the favor of God. So the Pharisees and the religious leaders couldn't hear Jesus and the simple solution to their problem because they were wrapped up in the religious duty. They didn't get that it was about love and it was really important to them to get honor from men. But not us, right? Right? We get it. And so this stuff isn't all new to us. We just need to press into it more and more. Isn't this good? All right. So as the band comes up, Lori had a good testimony about from from, uh, the healing room this weekend where it sounds like God did something marvelous 
and it had an effect on people, uh, almost like what we just read about. <laughs> um, Helen invited somebody that is part of her world, uh, a couple, to come to the healing room. Um, and when they came, um, we, we have a little form fi we fill out, and um, it said on both of them, um, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And both of them wrote no. And um, it is rare that we have people come in that aren't already believers. Um, so that caught our attention. And um, we ministered to them separately. That means that we were in separate areas with separate teams. Um, but it, it was an amazing encounter with God. By then, the presence of God was so thick in the room as we'd been spending time with him. And um, the man in front of us had uh, COVID in August, and he was so compromised that his life really had been trashed, his quality of life. And um, the doctors just within the last few days had basically said, there's nothing we can do for you. And this man was filled with hopelessness and just really um, feeling quite desperate about his future. And um, so um, we're, we're praying for him. God's power was just so strong. And I just kept saying, this is God loving you. This is, this is his love. His power is surging through your body. You feel that, don't you? And his you know, tears and emotion, we knew God was encountering this man's heart. And he started breathing better and better. We just kept encouraging, breathe deep, breathe deep. And you could just see him breathing deeper and deeper as his lungs received the power of God. And then um, we just walked him through in a relationship with Jesus, that this God who is just now touching you and healing you wants to have a relationship with you. And he was just like, yes, of course. And we're, I think John and I were kind of like, whoa, that was easy. Easy. Um, and the same thing was happening in the, with the other people ministering to the lady, her shoulder, um, that she was in very, um, very uh, um, deep abide, you know, pain that had been a part of her life for a long time. Her shoulder just was completely relieved of all of that pain. And the same experience when they said, would you like to receive Christ? And they walked her through salvation. And she said, yes, absolutely. And so it's just, it, it is, it's a perfect picture of this sermon. Praise God. Yeah, the power of God was there. And um, Luke 5.17 says, the power of God surged through their body. It was present to heal. And that same power is present today that is always with us. We carry the power and the presence of the love of God. I um, just want to encourage you to, to encounter today. Don't leave with what you came in here with. If it's pain, if it's sickness, don't leave even with those coughs. Let's 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 take it out. Um, leave leave it leave it at, at on the throne here. And um, I just thank you, Lord God, for what you've done. I thank you, Lord God, even now for encountering hearts in this room. That the power of God is here now in this room, surging through your people, present to heal.